My friends at Steel, welcome you to the new year. And the folks at Steel, S-T-I-H-L, they want to give you more than just the right tools for the job. They want to make sure you have the advice you need from people you can trust. And with over 10,000 authorized local steel dealers across the country, they make it easy to find steel products and get the guidance and everything you need to do the job right. Whether you're a homeowner taking on a backyard project or pro-tackling the job site, your local steel dealer has you covered. Again, that's S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. Find the local dealer near you, steelusa.com. You can find all of their award-winning products. Spring's around the corner. We're still in the midst of winter, obviously. They have the product to help you get the job done right. Go check them out. Again, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com, steelusa.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, what a night for college football. The semifinal matchups in the college football playoff were terrific. We're shopping for quarterbacks. Michael Penix, boy, did he ever stand out. I'm telling you what, don't sleep on Michael Penix. Shenanigans at Broncos headquarters. Talking about integrity and honesty, Sean Payton. And Todd Helton has a shot to enter the Baseball Hall of Fame this year. Rockies beat writer for the Denver Post, Patrick Saunders, joins us to explain what might work against Todd. There's a lot more baseball writers on the East Coast because there's so many more credentialed media out there who don't think about Todd Helton. And it hurts Todd, and I don't think it's fair. And if he doesn't make it this year, that's going to be the reason why. Welcome in, everybody, and a big happy new year. The holidays went uh, well for all of you, and hope you're getting settled into uh, 2020. I was thinking about this the other day that, you know, it's just a few years ago, we were in the midst of COVID and and every new year, like 2020 is like good riddance. And then even 2021, it was kind of good riddance. And and so now we're a couple of years uh, removed from that. And um, so uh, hopefully 2024 welcomes in some uh, great things for all of you. I know what it welcomed in um, from a college football standpoint, two wonderful games in the semifinals. Now, the last several years, and almost historically, the semifinal matchups have not necessarily been great. Uh, And this year, the semifinal matchups in the college football playoff were terrific. They all went down literally to the final snap of the game, Alabama and Michigan, Texas and Washington. And and by the way, remember last week I said I'm going to throw in my two cents, and I said it's not even worth that as to who I thought would win. Not generally in the prediction business. But I hope you didn't follow my advice. I certainly hope you didn't utilize my advice to bet because I had Alabama beating Michigan and I had Texas beating Washington. We know that didn't happen. Michigan survived a lot of miscues in that game. I mean, the first snap of the game, J.J. McCarthy throws a pick, if not for that kid having a toe out of bounds. And then who knows what would have happened. And they had the kid back up inside his five-yard line and muff a punt. And fortunately, he was able to scramble, get on it, and fall at the half-yard line. And, and Michigan was able to to run out the clock to get to overtime. That could have been disastrous. Can you imagine if, if that thing ended on a safety and it was that close? And before I get 
further into the particulars of the game. This one had me going nuts. Every once in a while, you know, if you follow me, I'll, I'll get on Twitter and, and discuss certain plays or, or make my thoughts known on, on certain plays or certain games. And you are taught, if you played football at any level, you're taught as a punt returner to put your heels on the 10-yard line. If the ball is over your head, let it go because more often than not, it's going to go in the end zone. Even with these specialized punters who punt the uh, toe of the football and and or the point of the football and they're able to control spin a little bit, it still is not wise. And you see more and more guys go back and field punts at the five-yard line, at the three-yard line. Why on earth this, this kid from Michigan was went back to the two-yard line to field the punt? It, it just blows me away because you have, you have coaches – who are at the absolute top of their profession, Jim Harbaugh, Nick Saban, and you know they go over this. You know it's talked about. You know it's drilled into them by the special teams coaches. And yet, even at the highest levels, you have you know errors like that, errors in judgment that are made. And it's mind-boggling. You see it uh, all the time. Getting back to Alabama, Michigan, the other thing that stood out, and, and you never want to point to to one young man, and, and I feel terrible for this kid, but the center for, for Alabama, you know, really struggled. I mean, it's one thing to roll a, a snap back one time in a game, and you're like, man, that, that can't happen, but it did. I mean, he rolled a number of snaps back, and it really affected the outcome because Milrow, you know, uh, there was one drive there where they lost like 15 yards because he just had to fall on it. And and they were actually in plus territory prior to that. So that drive got wasted. There were even the last snap of the game that was supposed to be an RPO. And because the snap was low, I think Jalen Milrow somewhat panicked, though it's not fair to put it on him, and basically said, I, I, I got to pick this up and try to get what I can. He ran up the middle into a stone wall and ball game went to, uh, to Michigan. But really competitive um, Michigan looks like a team of destiny with all of the things they've gone through with the with their head coach Harbaugh being suspended on a couple of occasions this year with the memory of last year and the loss to TCU probably still at the forefront of their mind. They look like a team of destiny. We'll find out because I think Washington has an opportunity uh, to give them a heck of a game. Takeaway from Texas and Washington, fun game, entertaining game, and of these four well-known quarterbacks coming in, Michael Penix, and I said this, I said Michael Penix spins the, ba- the, the football, not the baseball, spins the football better than, than any of the other three kids, and that's not to take anything away from Ewers and, and J.J. McCarthy and Milrow. I thought Milrow with his size and ability to scramble would be the biggest X factor running the football. And it, at times he was. Uh, obviously, they didn't win the football game. I thought McCarthy was just okay, really, honestly. But Michael Penix, boy, did he ever stand out. I mean, how accurate is, is he? He delivers the football with... Um, you know, he reads well, but he, he really is, is super accurate, and he, and he has a great arm, and he has great touch on the deep ball. He's throwing the football down the field. I'll give you a contrast, and I give uh, Bo Nix a lot of credit. He played for Oregon, 
in the bowl game the other day. He didn't have to. He's, he's on his way to the NFL. Uh, well thought of kid who's going to go, you know, middle, late first round. He dumps the football off quite a bit. He checks down. They run a lot of, uh, you know, screens and, and short passing game. Michael Penix throws the ball down the football field. And of that next tier of quarterbacks who are headed to the NFL, I know that that Drake May and, and Caleb Williams are looked upon as the two elite guys. And then and they may be the Heisman Trophy winner, Jalen Daniels. I'm telling you what, don't sleep on on Michael Penix. Not only can he deliver the ball, he has ability to move in the pocket. He has the ability to to scramble and gain positive yards, which you absolutely have to have now uh, from your quarterback. I was thinking about this when they showed Arch Manning on the sideline and his two uncles who, you know, especially Peyton, one of the all-time greats, and and Eli Manning, you know I'm a Giant fan, he's going to go to the Hall of Fame also because he won two Super Bowls, Um, and he had a wonderful career. I don't know how many of those guys you'd be saying they're going to be drafted with the top few picks in the draft as great as they were because you have to have a quarterback that can move a little bit in today's game or maybe more than a little bit has to have the ability to to take a play and make a play when what was designed does not work but I was really impressed with Penix so back to that game it comes down to, it didn't look like it was going to, but it comes down to Texas has a chance to win the damn football game. They have the ball at the 11 or 12-yard line with 15 seconds left and a fresh set of downs. Now, they have no timeouts, but with 15 seconds left, you should be able to get off three or four throws into the end zone. Amazingly and shockingly, The first play called by Steve Sarkeesian, who I have great respect for, really have great respect for, was a swing pass in the flat. I mean, by design, it wasn't a check down. It was a swing pass to the flat, and it was caught, and fortunately, it was run out of bounds, or um, or, or, or the I can't remember now. Was, Was it incomplete? Whatever the point was, it wasn't to the end zone. If he gets tackled in bounds there... You're not going to get another playoff. You have to throw the ball into the end zone every play with no timeouts. And, you know, ultimately, you know, they got, you know, a few more plays. They did not score. Credit to, uh, you know, to Washington for holding. So it'll be Washington and Michigan. And there's great irony there. (laughs) It's the Pac-12 against the Big Ten. It's a Rose Bowl game. And it got me thinking, the Pac-12 is no more, right? And the demise of the Pac-12 is that for a number of years, really throughout this period of time where we've had a college football playoff, the Pac-12 has not been up to snuff, certainly with the Big Ten, and and nobody's been up there year in and year out with the SEC. And it's one of the reasons that they weren't going to command the kind of money that the aforementioned conferences were getting. And it's why USC, and then grabbed the hand of UCLA, orchestrated by Fox Sports, bolted for the Big Ten. But let's just say in a different world that 
the television negotiations weren't going to take place until after this 23 college football season. And USC and UCLA were still part of the Pac-12. And they were still trying to do better than, say, around $30 million per school. And I know there's a geographic element that still was, is going to preclude them from getting the kind of dollars that the SEC has commanded and the Big Ten has commanded because their games are on so late. But if you look at how the Pac-12 in its final year of football performed this year, Washington's in the national championship game. Oregon would be in the college football playoff next year when if the you know when it expands to 12 teams. Oregon lost two games this year by a field goal twice to Washington. They're one of the eight best football programs in America right now. So you have Washington and Oregon carrying the flag for the Pac-12, and you haven't even mentioned USC and, to a lesser degree, UCLA. So would the dollars have been better after the performance of the conference this year? And yeah, even throw in Colorado and all of the attention they have received and continue to receive because of the presence of Deion Sanders in Boulder. How many more dollars would have been offered up from a television standpoint and would the Pac-12 been able to remain intact? We'll never know, but it did get me uh, thinking about that after the performance of Washington and, and to a lesser degree, uh, Oregon this year. Sets up for a great uh, game. I like Michigan, as I alluded to. I think Michigan, uh, so strong defensively, and Washington is is not nearly as strong defensively. Um, love their offense with Michael Penix. Love their receiving core at UW. But I think you're going to get a heavy dose of Blake Corum. You're going to get a heavy dose of, you know, run game with J.J. McCarthy. They're going to try to control the clock, shorten the game. And if they score touchdowns on lengthy drives running the football, it's going to be really difficult on Washington. But I think it's going to be an interesting matchup. Um, and Michael Penix is shooting up draft boards uh, as we speak. Other bowl games. Do you realize there were 84 teams that went bowling this year. 84. Every year we talk about this, you know, there's you know so many bowl games. There's 43 of them. And, you know, if you got nothing going on a Tuesday or Wednesday night on December 15th or December 20th, and, you know, as the holidays come around, the games typically get better. Um, it, it, it's fun, and it's a reward for schools that, you know, won seven, eight football games, even six games. Um, disappointment. It makes it that much more disappointing, by the way, that Colorado and Colorado State couldn't get to a bowl game since basically two-thirds of the schools are close to it um, in Division One football playing a bowl game. Uh, so you, you ought to be going to a bowl game every year of some kind, right, if you have a decent program. Uh, but I wanted to get back to the bowl season, and this has been talked about quite a bit by coaches. With guys sitting out now and with guys entering the transfer portal, these teams that maybe won seven or eight games are not the same teams when they go to a bowl game. And, and we saw some just bad football. And we saw ultimately some mismatches. And I don't know how to fix it. I do know that it's a great thing that we're finally going to 12 
in the college football playoff, long overdue. I don't know why they waited. I said this years ago when they first went to a 14 playoff. I said, why not go to eight? And my rationale was you're always going to have a, a sleeper team or you provide an opportunity for a Cinderella type of team if you go to eight and everything's about money. We all understand that. And you'd command even more dollars. You'd have quarterfinal weekend, you'd have semifinal weekend, you have national championship weekend. Well, they're finally getting to that, and I'm glad it's it's 12 teams. But it's the other bowl games are just, you know, a, a complete afterthought. It also takes me, by the way, to that matchup between Georgia and Florida State. Now, I understand for all you Seminole fans that, that, that are still enraged because the Seminoles went unbeaten in a Power Five conference, did everything right, and were not invited to the Final Four. And I said on this podcast, I think they got it right. The shame of it is, was Florida State deserving? Yes. Yeah, so was Georgia. You don't slip from one to five after losing to a great program like Alabama by a field goal and, and slip that far. Both of those schools should have been in it. Um, the problem was you could only take four. In the bowl game, the matchup between Florida State and Georgia, all of Georgia, Georgia's kids played. Nobody opted out. Kids going to the NFL didn't opt out. I'm sure they had a few kids in the portal. They didn't opt. They played. Um, Florida State was missing 86% of their offensive production in that game. And they got absolutely embarrassed. They got waxed. I mean, you could make the argument had they lost, you know, 35-21, okay, competitive football game, they lost by a couple of touchdowns, but hey, listen, we were missing so many different guys. They got beat 63-3, to 63-3. to So what does that say about the twos at Florida State? What does it say about their depth? And I do. they had a great year, and they were deserving to play for a national championship but they weren't among the four best schools by the criteria and the schedule played. Um, and, and that's why the committee got it right within reason, because I think that if you lined them up and played, you know, the top 12 teams this year, I'm not so sure that at the end of that tournament, Georgia wouldn't be national champions for the third straight year. And, you know, all they could do is play in that bowl game. So it was a fascinating weekend. It's going to be a fun uh, Monday night in the national championship um, game as uh, as well. Staying in football, as a parent, as a teacher, as an adult, and certainly as a coach, there are certain catchwords that we use with regularity. We always talk about accountability. We talk about integrity. We talk about honesty. We want that in our children. We want that on the young people that populate our teams, right? And yet, oftentimes, we do not get that from the leaders, whether they be a coach. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about here momentarily. And also from a referee. Brad Allen Longtime referee was handling the Dallas Cowboy Detroit Lion nationally televised game. Good football game. Comes down to the end. Dan Campbell, who's had a, had, you know, 
a great year again in Detroit and, and Detroit, you know, for years, just a doormat. And now they're fun to watch and Campbell's fun to listen to. And he's energized that, that whole city. He goes for two. He says, I'm going for the win. And he has a play that, that they worked on. I guarantee you not only just this week, but throughout the season, um, we've seen this type of play before. It's a tackle eligible play. He told the referee, which is common place in college football, in the NFL, probably even in high school football, if you have a couple of gadgets, you want the referee to be aware so the referee uh, you know, doesn't flag it. Brad Allen was told about this pregame, and yet he completely screwed it up. You know the story now. You've seen the video. He has the guy, he has number 70, reporting, even though number 70 was about 10 yards away from him, and he's walking away from number 68, who's standing next to him, who's who's obviously reporting. Why else would he go over to him? And they messed it up, and they cost Detroit probably a victory on that two-point conversion because they got the two-point conversion, and as you know, it was wiped out. And then he doubled down on his mistake after the game saying, no, the number 70 reported. How did number 70 report when you're already walking away and number 70's not within, as I said, you know, six, seven, eight, ten yards of you? You messed it up. We teach people to own mistakes. Own it. And from the NFL standpoint, Adam Schefter came out with a report, and he didn't cite any sources, but said that their crew is going to be downgraded and highly unlikely they get a postseason game. Well, he had to get that from somewhere. One would assume he got it from Park Avenue in the NFL offices. Why hasn't the NFL come out and made a statement and said, you know what, we own this. We There, there was an egregious error at the end of that football game. Shouldn't have happened, but it did. I mean, you have a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. Mistakes are going to be made. Own them when you make them. Staying in the NFL talking about integrity and honesty. Sean Payton, in this now ongoing saga with how Russell Wilson came to be being benched, he said it was, you know, to uh, ignite his team, give him a spark, language along those lines. And then he was asked about the genesis of the report that they asked Russell Wilson to move the date of his you know, guaranteed contract for 2025 to move it back further to eliminate the possibility that if he's hurt, he doesn't pass a physical. And that conversation evidently took place after the big victory for the Broncos over Kansas City, and they ended that uh, long losing streak to the Chiefs, and, and they, we know, got momentum after that. And he was threatened with being benched if he didn't comply. Well, Sean Payton, who let me take you back for a moment, just to remind everyone, Broncos gave up a first-round pick to New Orleans for Sean Payton. Sean Payton is paid right behind Bill Belichick at the top of the food chain in the NFL, in coaching salaries, he makes $18 million a year. Do you think for a moment Sean Payton is not aware of everything that goes on within that Bronco organization? So he's going to be oblivious 
to conversations taking place between the representation for Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson himself, that just George Payton, the general manager, and Greg Penner, the principal owner, they were the only two? Because that's what he came out and said. Sean Payton did. He said he was not privy to those conversations. That's bullshit. There's no way. Yeah, they asked to bench the quarterback, they threatened to bench the quarterback, and you as the head coach doesn't know about that? Was he going to get a phone call on, on Tuesday? But hey, by the way, uh, you know, you got to go with Stidham this week. Um, you know, Russell, uh, you know, he didn't comply with our our request and, and we need you to bench him, which would open up a whole other can of worms, by the way. And that's why the NFLPA is involved. Be honest. Have integrity. I, I, I could not believe that Sean Payton said that. But there's some other things that Sean Payton has said that I was shocked by going all the way back to the summer, uh, you know, when he got after his predecessor, Nathaniel Hackett. Why? For what reason? You don't rip your brethren, even if you don't know them, even if you don't have a uh, you know, relationship with them. Okay, coming up on January the 23rd, we are going to learn who is in the class of 2024 for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Todd Helton was 11 votes shy last year. He is trending, as we speak right now, above that line. You have to get 75% of the electorate. He's around 82% again as we tape. There's going to be typically a reduction from that percentage when all the ballots are revealed on January 23rd. Fingers crossed he deserves to be there, deserves to join Larry Walker and become the second Rocky enshrined into Cooperstown. But I thought a perfect guest this week is the longtime uh, baseball beat writer for the Rockies from the Denver Post, um, a guy that obviously covers the sport, loves the sport, former president of the Baseball Writers Association of America, and they are the ones that vote primarily for the Hall of Fame. And to get Patrick's perspective on the voting process, on the electorate, and specifically, naturally, on the candidacy of Todd Helton. So uh, a friend and a colleague and uh, a guy that I know you've read many, many times through the years, from the Denver Post, Patrick Saunders. All right, Patrick, first and foremost, Happy New Year, man. How's everything? Good family time over the holidays? Yeah, terrific, Drew. Thanks, and Happy New Year to you, too. Yeah, it's uh, plenty of time uh, with family, friends, catching up, uh, winding down still after the long season. But, uh, yeah, hoping for a for a good 2024 for sure. A- absolutely. And, um you and I have had enough conversations through the years. You're a big, big time dog person. I am. I've had goldens in the past. You have two beautiful young goldens right now. So how are the dogs doing? Bonnie and Peaches, as I tweet out often, are having plenty of adventures. Take them hiking all the time. My my new uh, jam, so to speak, Drew, is take them up to Red Rocks a lot. And there's some trails around Red Rocks, and we hike there. And then I get my steps in going up the stairs and in the amphitheater amphitheater and some other uh, things for a workout, and the dogs just love it. But uh, I'm 19 months old now, and uh, 
Goldens are phenomenal dogs, no question. They're the best. They're almost as famous as Herb Streak's Golden that he prances around. Uh, <laughs> but they get to they get to ride on private aircraft, so uh, they're 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 like uh, aristocratic uh, Golden, right? <laughs> yeah, mine are a little more blue collar. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, I've said this many times. My favorite people on earth are dogs. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, as my mom has told me through the years. Um, Dogs are God's angels. I believe that. Uh, I'm with you 100%. All right. Hey, Patrick, you're the perfect person for um, talking about Todd Helton's candidacy, but within his candidacy, and we'll all find out on January 23rd if Todd can eclipse that 75% marker, and we'll we'll get more into that. And and I know you and I both concur that he should be uh, a Hall of Famer, but you're a past president of the uh, Baseball Writers Association of America, and walk people through the electorate, if you will, for baseball's Hall of Fame, and I think it's the most exclusive Hall of Fame among the major sports. But if you could just give people a, a kind of a Cliff Notes education as to, you know, who votes, if you would. Okay. Well, the Baseball Writers Association of America, which has been around for for almost a hundred years, maybe uh, maybe it is a hundred years now. Essentially, um, it's a reasonably high hurdle to become a member. You've um, you've got to be able to. Uh, to cover the team on a fairly consistent basis. Um, so you've got to pay attention. You've got to be in the know. Now, there are people who are holdovers from years when they used to cover baseball who still have a vote, although that's lessening now. But you have to hold a baseball writer's card, so be a member for 10 consecutive years before you're allowed to vote for the Hall of Fame. And, for instance, in my case, I started covering the Rockies pretty much full-time in the summer of 2005, but then I took off two years as an editor at the Denver Post, and that broke my consecutive year string. So I had to start from scratch when I started covering the team again in 2012. So I really have not had a chance to vote very many times. This is only the third year I've voted. So to be a voting member, it takes some doing. So then if you are a voting member, um, you get in around December, early December, late November, you get a, a ballot, and it comes in the mail, old school, uh, and you get the names on the ballot. Uh, you can vote for none. You can vote for one. You can vote for two. You can vote for as many as t- up to ten in a single year. And then you submit the ballots. You have to have them postmarked by uh, December 31st. Uh, they go to Jack O'Connell, who's the uh, secretary treasurer of the baseball writers. They uh, can uh, tabulate everything, um, certify it, goes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and then uh, the votes will be announced publicly on the January 23rd. You know, in the meantime, via Twitter and some various uh, online accounts, uh, People release their ballots, and you get a general sense of how things are going and how players are trending. For instance, Todd right now, I believe he's at about 81%. He's got to clear the 75% hurdle to make it, and this is his sixth year. I think he's going to make it, but I also think it's going to be very close, and it's going to be a little tense as, as January 23rd rolls near. 
Yeah, um, I, I saw as of this morning, we're taping on Tuesday, uh, January 2nd, right around what you said, 81, 82%. And there's typically, you want to talk about close, as, you, as you're well aware, there's typically about a 6.2% drop off of the ballots that are not publicly revealed. And so that would put him right in that 75% corridor, and, and he needs to you know, obviously go past that. Last year, he came up 11 votes short. I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm going to ask you anyhow. Help me out with something. How do how do some folks, and there's three folks who whose ballots have been revealed that voted for Todd Helton a year ago, so he was a Hall of Famer in their minds in 2023, but this go-round did not vote for him. Yeah, it's perplexing. I mean, there is a numerical reason for it, Drew, and that's, of course, if if there, if, let's say Todd was their ninth or tenth person on their ten-man ballot, and then you have, you know, certain Hall of Famers in their mind that deserve it more than Todd, and that in this case would be Adrian Beltre, who's an, a no-brainer. I think he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And my guess is the other person who might have bumped uh, Todd off would be Joe Maurer. And what those those voters think of, rather than say, well, Todd Helton's a, a Hall of Famer no matter what, they play a numbers game. And they said, well, I had room for him last year, but I don't have room for him this year. I don't do my own ballot that way. Uh, I understand the the reasons why some guys do, I suppose. But to me, if you think the guy's good enough for the Hall of Fame, well, then you don't take him off your ballot the next year. I, I just don't, I just don't get that. And as long as I as you know, I'm bitching a little bit here, Drew. My worry for Todd and the ballot this year. Uh, you mentioned all those votes that are not made public. Uh, there's a lot more writers baseball writers on the East Coast because there's so many more credentialed media out there who don't think about Todd Helton or he's an afterthought to them and we don't see their ballots publicly. And they never paid attention to the Rockies during Todd's heyday. All they know about Colorado and the Rockies is Coors Field and what they believe are skewed numbers. They never saw him play. And then it doesn't help and Forgive me for my rant, but it doesn't help when some more prominent members of the East Coast media uh, knock Helton or say, well, he's, he's the Hall of the Very Good, but he's not the Hall of Fame because look at his road splits and blah, 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 blah. Well, people who never saw Todd play and people who, writers who don't do their homework as they should, they just get led by the nose by some of the more prominent writers who make their views public, and it hurts Todd. And I don't think it's fair, and if he doesn't make it this year, that's going to be the reason why. Yeah, and, and I get so frustrated, uh, as do you and, and others out here. And, and first of all, if you delve into the numbers, his road numbers – in comparison to many other high-profile Hall of Famers, should actually assist his candidacy. Wouldn't you agree? I agree completely. I mean, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but I've used it multiple times in stories and columns through the years that if you take 
what Todd did at Coors Field, it's off the charts. And, okay, I can see why it raises eyebrows. Okay, yes, Coors Field's the most offensive ballpark in Major League history in, in some ways. I get that. But if you add in what he did on the road, and by the way, his road OPS, I believe, is even better than Adrian Beltre's, if I'm not mistaken, um, who's going to get in for sure. But if you look at Todd compared to a lot of other Hall of Famers, his road numbers were better. And then, so what you're doing essentially is penalizing him for being great at Coors Field, like ignoring the fact that he was a better than average, even very good hitter on the road. And when I talk about not doing homework, I'm talking about those people don't realize how difficult it is to be essentially be a player who can thrive at altitude in that environment and hold their own or even do better on the road. That is no easy task for anybody. No, he's got be- yeah, he's got better road numbers than guys like Dave Winfield, guys like Eddie Murray, who were slam dunk Hall of Famers. Um, exactly. Uh, it's just if you look at the list of people that he outperformed on the road. And the other thing that I struggle with is home stadiums are home stadiums. We don't do this Coors Field thing with any other player. We don't detract from pitchers who performed um, at, at Dodger Stadium for a large portion of their career because it was always a great pitcher's park. We don't take away from left-handed power hitters who played most of their career in the Bronx at Yankee Stadium where right field's an absolute joke. But we do it with Coors Field. Have you had, you know, one of the beautiful things about what we all do, you know, we, you know, on, on the television side, we sit in, the, in, a, in a booth and we watch game, you know, the game unfold. You guys are downstairs as you're following the game. You're able to have conversations with your brethren, if you will. I'm sure you've had countless conversations with some of your colleagues who, who are on the East Coast during, as a game unfolds about this topic. What did they say? They will say, well, regarding Todd specifically, but Rockies players in general, they will say uh, they, and I'm, maybe I'm exaggerating, Drew, but they will essentially say, and I've heard people say this, well, baseball Coors Field is not real baseball. I mean, that's essentially what they say, uh, even post-humidor, that it's the, the alleys are too big, uh, you know, and then they point out the, the home road splits of a lot of players. Uh, but then... I will counter with my argument that I said before. Well, you're penalizing somebody like a Todd Helton, Larry Walker, for a number of years until Larry finally made it. You're diminishing his greatness because of the environment he played in, and and they just don't buy it. And then I'll say to him, well, well, what is it about you know Todd Helton that's not Hall of Fame worthy? And they will tell me, well, his peak was only so many years, or he wasn't particularly a good slugger for the last four or five years of his career. And I counter with, okay, but the guy played 17 years, right? And he was still a good ball player for 17 full seasons, all with the same organization. Um, you have to be able to put in context the, everything about the player to penalize him simply because of the ballpark he played in is wrong. And sometimes they agree, and sometimes I've had people say, well, maybe I'll take a harder look. Mm -hmm. But then I get other people who just shrug their shoulders and say, 
you know what? The eye test or the, the numbers test, I know a Hall of Famer when I see it, and Todd Helton's not a Hall of Famer. Yeah. That's but then my next question is, well, how many times did you see Todd Helton? How many times did you see Todd Helton um, foul off six pitches in a row and then double into the gap? Um, you know, how many times did you see Todd Helton – uh, with the sun in his eyes from the, from the glare of the sun from, uh, you know, the left field corner, uh, save an error with a golden glove play at first base. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Uh, but it's a hard argument and I hate to harbor on the East Coast mentality. Uh, and I know you grew up in New York, but I think there's a blind spot to the Rocky Mountain Legion in baseball. I really do. A hundred percent. And I've made that statement many times and, and I feel, I don't know if this is the right way to phrase it, but even more qualified to make that statement because I grew up there. And I remember, Patrick, going back. This is when I was, I think I was doing pre and post games. So this goes back into, oh, right right around late 90s, maybe 2000. And I, I'm back in New York and my dad's going to the game because he still lived back there at that point in time. And um we're going to a game and he's a lifelong, huge baseball fan and, and knows the sport really well. And I was telling him about Todd Helton, and, and he kind of had heard of him, but didn't know a lot about him. And after watching him for a weekend, he was like, wow, you're right. I mean, this guy's a great player. I mean, he had it's back in the Shea Stadium days. And people back there, they don't know. And one thing, the other thing that really hurts is that our games are on typically late at night, and they don't, they don't see. But in this day and age, that's no longer an excuse. That is no longer an excuse, and it, and it really irritates me. I got one more uh, kind of in this vein, Patrick, for you, and that is have you ever conversed with, with one of your colleagues that put no names on the Hall of Fame ballot? It's almost like some of these folks are trying to make a statement of some kind. I don't know what it is, but that, that irks me as well. I, it irks me too. Um, that, well, not just that. Uh, there's some ballots I've seen recently where they come in with one or two names, and sometimes those one or two names are, uh, let's say, A-Rod or, you know, one of the steroid guys, and I'm not going to get deep into the woods on that, but you're right. They are using their ballot to make a statement. Well, I'm sorry, that's not what uh, the Hall of Fame voting is about. It's about the Hall of Fame. Now, we have... There is a set criteria that we're supposed to follow, and I don't know if fans are aware of this, uh, but sportsmanship, uh, if that's the exact word, I'm not sure, is is part of the equation, or it's supposed to be. But um, our obligation is to review these guys as Hall of Famers. Now, we're all going to have different uh, readings of what means a Hall of Famer. In my case... I think a player such as a Todd Helton, who spent 17 years as a warrior for the same organization, to me, that is a plus. That is part of what makes him a Hall of Famer. Not a Hall of Sabermetrics, but a Hall of Famer. What he meant to the game, what he meant to his city, his town, his team. Uh, so the guys who simply use the ballot to either promote themselves or because they're a curmudgeon stuck in the, you know, 
I don't know, venting or ranting some way, that bugs me. But I have never confronted anybody because I don't know those guys. But I've seen that same thing, and I'm like, why are you wasting your time? Don't even vote them. Yeah, you you almost wish, or maybe I do, that you can lose your vote because it is um, – I have such great respect for – the Hall of Fames in, in all the sports, but particularly baseball, because it is such a difficult um, little club and so exclusive to enter. And I know that you take, and many do, I'm not suggesting that most do not, the importance of of what you have an opportunity to do, and that's cast a vote. You take it very seriously, and I'm sure you spend hours and hours going over numbers and careers and and digging in. And I just find, you know, there there's an irresponsibility factor or there's a look-at-me factor, and you'd like to see some of those folks lose their vote. Just like in the past, Patrick, uh, where there were columnists, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, that may have seen one or two games a year, but they had a vote. And I'm like, that's that's just not right. I agree. I agree. And and I think it's an obligation uh, to do it right and do it well. Uh, I will say this in defense of the baseball writers. Um, you said it's a very uh, exclusive club to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame, which I think is really cool. Um, and I know people think, well, there should be a different way. Let the players choose it, et cetera. Uh, I disagree with that. I think the vast majority of those who get a uh, Hall of Fame ballot work so hard to get it that they care a lot and they take their time. And I do think the baseball writers, for the most part, uh, despite controversy, despite flaws, do an excellent job with it. I really do. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be tweaked. It doesn't mean there are not bad apples in the, you know, the, 400 some voters out there. Uh, but overall, uh, I like the way the Hall of Fame for baseball is uh, selected. Uh, I think it's very public. Uh, I think it gets people talking about the sport during the off season, which I think is a good thing. We need as much baseball coverage as we can get. But at the same time, that doesn't mean it's individual voters or the system itself can't be tweaked or can't be criticized. But overall, I like the fact that the baseball writers who have to cover teams for cover the sport for 10 consecutive years to get a vote, I think it's a pretty good way to go. I mean, you can talk about the NFL where it's essentially a very elite group of people, yes, but they gather in a room behind closed doors and mash it out. That's one way to do it. I kind of like the way baseball does it. Yeah, and, and I and I understand that, and it is an exclusive group. Um, it's not easy. I know um, from conversations with um, you know writers who who are still trying to get in. It's not an easy group to get uh, get into the Baseball Writers Association of America. And what I'm about to say, you know, may certainly sound um, selfish in its in, in its origin, but I I think. And I don't know if it'll ever get to this because you're talking about the way it's been done for many generations. But I'd like to see a combination of the Baseball Writers Association, um, a a segment of of players and coaches or whatever. And also, again, here comes the selfish motivation part, is that um, 
broadcasters who truly do watch and have to be into every pitch to call a game and aren't seeing a team occasionally and players occasionally, but are seeing them day after day, you know, I, I would I would love to see those folks as part of the voting body potentially uh, going forward. I don't know if that'll ever take place, but I agree with you, Drew. And you know, if I'm being totally honest, um, I think well, not just you as a play-by-play guy, but Spilly or Corey Sullivan or Jeff Houston or Jenny, whoever, um, you guys have to do a lot of homework and. You guys actually, and I'm being honest here, I think you guys tend to know more about the opposition than most local beat writers. Yeah, our focus is on, usually, I mean, not that we don't pay attention to who's coming to town, but we don't have to be as prepared for them because we don't really write very much about the opposition. We focus on the home team. And I agree with you completely. I mean, I think you certainly, let's just take you as an example, are certainly more qualified to cast a vote about historical baseball players than, you know, some some kid for a small paper back in, say, Pennsylvania, not to disparage that kid who finally gets his baseball card. But let's face it, you're more tuned in and talk to more people and have, have more learned opinions than a lot of the writers do. So I would be completely on board for having, uh, you know, not all the broadcasters, uh, but certainly those who are affiliated with the clubs, uh, I'd be completely on board if that ever comes to a vote with the baseball writers. I agree with that. Yeah, and it's it's all it's not about oh, oh I want to be a part of the process. I just want to see the process done right. And and it is frustrating as we've you know talked a little bit about some of these guys. And you know I started the conversation. I said there was three guys that voted for Todd last year and didn't this year. And you said that there there can be a numerical equation because you can only vote for ten. Uh, in the case of those three individuals, it wasn't they didn't run out of space all of a sudden because there were like nine new candidates that hit the ballot. They just decided this year if they voted for four or five. Todd was one of their four or five last year, but he wasn't this year. And the only two um, really impactful new names, Adrian Beltre, who's a slam dunk, as you mentioned, and then Joe Maurer, who's going to be very, very close. Um, yeah. And let me let me ask you, there's another guy that's close. And I'm just curious your, your thoughts on him. Billy Wagner, dominant closer. Um, but the body of work, it, you know, does not stretch out over the complete canvas for many people. Less than a thousand innings. Um, you know, a, a guy that, again, had great numbers, but for some, it wasn't long enough or substantive enough. Where, where do you stand on Billy Wagner? I, I, I voted for Billy Wagner, as I did for Andrew Jones, and I think both of those guys. Um, May not make it. I don't think either of them are going to make it this year. But uh, going back to my point I made about Todd Helton, um, I think sometimes longevity or peak career performance matters a lot. But in some instances, um, you have to look at them in their heyday. And I'm not talking one season or two or even three, but for four, five, six seasons, were they one of the elite players in their uh, time period, then I think both Andrew Jones and Billy Wagner qualified, right? I mean, 
a Wagner, think about this. I mean, 422 career saves, that's nothing to sneeze at, right? I'm looking at his numbers right now. 11.9 strikeouts per innings, 2.31 ERA. I mean, Andrew Jones hit 434 homers, and you know, Willie Mays once said he thought Andrew Jones was one of the greatest defensive center fielders in baseball history. That's coming from Willie Mays. Yet people look at both of those guys and say, well, they didn't do it for long enough. I think in some players' cases, that's a valid argument. In the case of Jones and Wagner, I think they were so good in their prime and so dominant and put up such terrific numbers and meant so much to their teams in their prime and in their heyday that to me they belong in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I, and I, and I know you can go back to, you know, the grand old days of 1940s baseball or uh, even the 50s or even the 60s. And there are players who made it back when baseball was, didn't have nearly as many teams and uh, it was a more exclusive club. But there are guys in the Hall of Fame who, if you really look at their career peak numbers, they didn't do all that much better than some of the guys we're talking about right now. But it was a, it was a, it was more of a good old boys club for the Hall of Fame back there. I really believe that. And yeah. so I think, I think you've got to, You've got to look at this from so many ways. Uh, but in the case of, of Billy Wagner, um, yeah, I, I voted for him. I'm curious, would you have voted for him if you had a ballot? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you one of the things that influenced me, which um, you know is, is part and parcel of some of the things we've been talking about. Spilly, who faced him, said he's the he, – he had his fastball – he felt like was almost unhittable. He said, you know, and he's a right-handed hitter. And he's facing a lefty, he said, because he was shorter in stature. He said the ball came out of his hand. He was throwing in the upper 90s, 100 miles an hour. And he said you literally could, couldn't even see it. And he said it, one of the most toughest and uncomfortable at-bats of anybody he faced, and he had the good fortune of playing for a nice period of time, faced some great, great, you know, arms, some Hall of Famers. And he felt like Billy Wagner was at the top of the heap. So I that influences me also with what you regurgitated. The numbers are, are, are really mind-boggling. And the last point that you made was something that mirrored what my late father told me years ago when you know, the conversation would uh, you know leak into the Hall of Fame. And he said his way of judging a Hall of Famer was again, with the eyeballs, he didn't have the advanced metrics and, and so on, was was that guy a dominant player for a period of time where you go, he's one of the best players in the game and he has been for the last, you know, half dozen years. And Billy Wagner fits that description. I mean, he may not have had a 20-year career, but he fits that description. I got... I agree yeah. yeah. I got an, and, and this one's been kicked around forever, so I'm going to ask it in a different uh, way, and that is, will some of the steroid-implicated guys, will they get in at some point down the road? Um, and, and I'll start with, really quickly, with, with Barry Bonds, who, you know, you and, you and I spend our half our lives at the ballpark, and if you ask virtually any player or any coach or manager over the, who's who's been in the game the last 30 plus years who's the best hitter 
you've ever seen. They don't equivocate. They don't lean back and say, let me give that some thought. They immediately fire out Barry Bonds. Um, in addition to that, you have guys like Clemens. We know who the names are. Um, will some of those guys in your mind ever get in? I know it's some. It's a somewhat unfair question, but I ask it anyway. Well, you know, obviously they're off the writers, the, most of them anyway. Uh, A-Rod's not there yet, and Manny Ramirez is still on the ballot. Uh, but, but Clemens and Bonds are not on the, the writers' ballot anymore. The 10 years have come and gone. Uh, they can make it through the Veterans Committee. Last year, the first time, neither of them did. Um, I think, I think eventually they might, because I do think over a time period, uh, there's going to be new blood in that Veterans Committee. I think that there'll be uh, more perspective. Uh, I do think there's a chance that bonds will eventually make it. And I, I think there's a chance that Pete Rose might eventually make it just because I think the attitudes uh, and the perception are going to change with history and with the passage of time. Having said that, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I never voted for Bonds, and I didn't vote for Clemens um, because uh, I don't want to get on my moral high horse here, uh, but I didn't vote for them because I think they knowingly and cheated, and I think they tarnished the game. And everything I've you know, read about my responses during about sportsmanship and everything else uh, about the game, I'm not discounting the fact that Bonds was the greatest hitter, greatest home run hitter of all time, uh, but I think he overtly and covertly, if you will, cheated the game, and so I couldn't bring myself to vote for it. I know there's an argument by many others go the other way. But to answer your basic question, Drew, um, although I would never vote for him, I think eventually he might make it in. Yeah, it, it, it becomes a fascinating question, and it, and it goes back to, uh, you know, is the Hall of Fame, is it is it a museum where we not only honor but tell the story of the greatest players and, and ultimately the greatest teams, et cetera, of baseball, and it's in that beautiful hamlet in upstate New York known as Cooperstown, um, or is it... You know, we we do get on our moral high ground, and I and I understand full well why you why you and many many others said I'm, I I just can't vote for someone who who openly cheated. Um, so it, it's it's a tough tough question. But then you go back and you say, okay, well, what about before 1947? All those folks that made it, they weren't necessarily competing against all of the greatest players in the world because no one of color was participating prior to 1947. Or you had, you know, avowed racists like Ty Cobb who were celebrated in the Hall of Fame. It, it's a, it, there is no easy answer. No, there isn't. There isn't. And you can, and people will, and I get this argument from people who who get mad at me for my point of view, Drew, who will say, well, come on, you're being a hypocrite. What about the players through, gosh, up and through, I don't know, 1990s who were not doing steroids, but they were doing what they used to call greenies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, amphetamines. It was, it was common knowledge that they used. Um, I guess I get that. Um, and I, I do have some, struggles with that point of view. I get it. But in my gut, I just, 
I could not bring myself to vote for those guys. No, and I and, and Patrick, believe me, I under I fully understand it. And as I said a moment ago, you're you're not alone. And it's um, I, I wonder. Uh, I never had to sit there and debate it with the ballot in front of me because I don't I don't have a ballot. But it would be tough. It, it would be. And you go, okay, you know, if you if you're going to go on. You know, the logic of, well, they would have been a Hall of Famer anyhow. Well, how do you, you know, how do you draw that distinction, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it truly is. I, I enjoy talking about it and debating it because it really doesn't happen in any other sport like it does um, with baseball. There's not, you know, there's maybe the casual debate, you know, is this NFL guy, a, you know, a Hall of Famer, this NHL guy, a Hall of Famer. Um, you know, basketball, it's not even exclusive to the NBA. It's a, it's a basketball Hall of Fame, right? Um, not not just professional Hall of Fame. So uh, I, I find it fascinating, and the process is, and I guess uh, I'll close with this. I, I know you and I both um, would concur that, that Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer, and when he first retired in 2013, Patrick, and you and I probably had this conversation, then people would ask me, and I'm sure you all the time, hey, will he get in? And my thought then is he's going to get crushed by Coors Field, and he's never going to get in even though I felt like he certainly was deserving. Um, I agree with you, and, and I think Larry Walker helped open the door, and I think Sabermetrics, uh, even for the last decade uh, since Todd retired, I think that's helped his cause, his, and we could crunch the numbers all day, Drew, but if you go back and you look at his numbers, not just home road splits, but where he ranks and his OPS and his on base and his walks to strikeouts and his doubles, all that stuff, you can crunch so many numbers, and there's so many people who spend a lot of time doing it. And when you look hard at the numbers and you get past the Coors Field hurdle, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. Um, and you throw in the fact that he played 17 years for the same organization and was a heart and soul, and you throw in his fielding. And, he, by the way, he deserved more than the gold gloves he got. Um, he's a Hall of Famer. And if you watched him, and you watched him more than I did even, he's a Hall of Famer. So, and I'm going to leave you with this. And, and one more thing, Drew, real quick. Yeah. Uh, as we were talking, I was looking up the, the requirements for a Hall of Famer. And this is one of my biblical tenets, if you will. It's the fifth on the list, and it's voting. And this is what the Hall of Fame voters are told. Voting shall be based upon the player's record playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contribution to the team teams on which the player played. Well, I look at that, and that's one of the reasons I didn't vote for Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, that clause right there. So uh, just to say, and I, I understand the reasons why other people disagree with me, but that's one of the main reasons why I voted the way I voted. And, and Patrick, one hundred percent. You could, based on that, you could say, yeah, that you know, some of those guys are going to fall really short when it comes to a couple of those, you know, character and um, integrity. Integrity, right? <laughs> That's two of the six I think you listed. So I get it. I get yeah, it. Yeah, but there, you know what? And I do not begrudge people who sit the other way either. Well, uh, I hope you and I, uh, you know, I. I I sent out a, a text this morning, texted back, and I know he's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a very prideful guy. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's an interesting character, as you and I both know. Um, but inside, 
he he really understandably wants to get in, and and I I, I hope this is the year for him, and I I know I that you concur with that. Well, I hope so too, because my plane is already booked. My trip to Knoxville for the twenty third. God has been gracious enough to allow me to to be at his home in Knoxville the day the vote comes out, and I sure hope to see tears of joy from Todd Elton. That's for sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for uh, for the time for for taking uh, people through the the process as well. All right, it's a good conversation. I hope people uh, enjoy it. Yeah, you bet, man. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye bye. So big thanks to uh, to Patrick and really enjoyed that conversation. I still do not get for the life of me, and and you could hear in Patrick's voice he doesn't either. Uh, you know, some of those folks out there that want to make a statement of some kind, vote for a guy one year, don't vote for him the next year, send in empty ballots, send in a ballot with with just one name on it. I'm not saying you have to have 10 guys. There might not be 10 guys. I've looked at the ballot. I don't know if I'd check off the box of of 10 guys. I still, I go back and forth on this, but, you know, it's a museum. And there's a story behind every piece of art in a museum, and there's a story behind, in this case, every athlete that gets enshrined in a Hall of Fame. And all of the things that they perhaps did are not glowing, whether it's on the field or off the field. And that's why, at some point in time, do the Pete Roses, the Barry Bonds, the Roger Clemens, do they deserve to be enshrined to tell the complete story of the game of baseball? Absolutely. And I'm glad that, that Patrick mentioned, you know, greenies, amphetamines, because for years, I mean, they were like on a bowl in the middle of the clubhouse. And I don't know if guys could post up every single day without them. I've talked to a number of players who played during that era, and they'd say, absolutely not. So was that cheating the game to some degree? Yes, it was. Anyhow, again, fingers crossed, Todd Helton deserves to be a a Hall of Famer. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out if this uh, was the year for Todd. I know that uh, it's something naturally and obviously that uh, he he really wants to see happen. Texted with him uh, earlier in the day and, and, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's a funny guy in that the last topic that he ever wants to discuss is himself. He was that way as a player. He, I, I used to kid him. He was a terrible interview when he had to be, uh, when he was discussing, you know, his exploits. If he, you know, he had a walk-off three-run home run, he was the worst. But if you asked him about a teammate, he was great. And that speaks to, you know, who Todd is also. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be celebrating Todd Helton making the Hall of Fame in a few weeks. We'll do it again in seven days. Once again, everybody, Happy New Year. And um, stay safe, stay well here in 2024. Talk to you in seven days.